All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to unpack this really positive text this morning. So uh, if you're looking for positive, encouraging, come back another time. Uh, no, but I, 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 I'm going to teach about four chapters, which is one image here. And so uh, we're going to miss some trees for the forest, but I think that's good. I think the heart of this is actually going to really help us be a faithful witness as a church. Just a quick update. Uh, you, you might have heard or uh, last week at the 9 a.m. services, a gentleman named K.O. who had a cardiac event, went in a cardiac arrest here at our church. I want to let you all know that he is okay. Uh, he's at home recovering, has a pacemaker, and and might be watching at home right now. Hi, KO. Good to see you all. So if some of you have might have that question, I just want to let you know. Uh, there was a, a lot of medical professionals stepped up and helped. And uh, praise the Lord, he was in the gathering of the saints. If he was at home by himself, he would not be watching at home right now. Uh, so praise the Lord for little acts of uh, providence. Uh, it, it is a sobering reminder to us that nobody knows what the day brings. There's this like picture that I have in my mind that each one of us was created with a little hourglass on it with our name and everyone gets a different amount of grains of sand and when you're born it flips over and you have no idea when your time comes. You have no idea how much time you have left. You have no, no idea how much time you have to repent, how much time you have to bear witness, how much time you have to worship God in this life. And we tend to kind of live in this kind of drunken stupor of believing that we're semi-immortal and think that like, of course tomorrow will come. Of course the sun will rise tomorrow. Of course I'll get to do Sunday again next Sunday. And we just, nobody knows at all. And I think that's part of what we're being arrested with and jostled with in this text is this invitation to wake up and realize that you don't know how much time you have left. Uh, I titled this sermon, While You Still Have Time, precisely because this is all about how the church and how the people around the church are supposed to respond when they're recognizing that they're in the middle of time. There's a couple different sections in this that, that highlight this, that there's six trumpets that blow and before the last one comes, there's like this interlude that's all about how the church is gonna be faithful in the middle of God's judgment. That the church then bears witness for 1260 days, which is three and a half years, which is half of seven, which is the fullness of time, that we're living in the middle of the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And how are we gonna be faithful in that between space? Not only that, but it's telling us that probably our instincts are to shoot at the wrong goal. You know, I'm back coaching three or four-year-old soccer again. I know some of you are like, can't wait to hear more three-year-old soccer stories from Seth. But we squeaked out a win this most recent game. Yeah, absolutely, big deal. Everybody cares who went. But here's the deal is we should have lost, but some kid on the other team scored two goals on his own goal. So we won, you know, and, and this, you know, there, pe people are pretty agitated about three-year-old soccer, and I just think it's funny. I'm like, nobody knows, nobody cares, but we won by one, and so now I care. You know, that's how, that's how it goes, but this kid, you know, he stole the ball, went straight to his own goal, scored, and just cheered, <laughs> yes, you know, and so happy, so proud, and everyone's like, 
Good job, buddy. <laughs> you, know, nobody, you know, when the dots don't connect, they don't connect. And, and, I, and I think way too often the church is shooting at the wrong goal and cheering, I scored a goal, and it's like, we're not even supposed to be shooting at that. That our witness is not what's described here. Our, our posture is not what's described here. Our sense of like what does faith, like our whole definition of faithfulness is off and so we shoot the wrong goal and we celebrate when we score and it's kind of all the, just imagine the angels in heaven feeling a little bit embarrassed for us. Like, ah, that was a nice goal, you know, but it's not what we're working on here. It's the wrong deal. And so we're gonna look at really uh, three things here, but before we jump into it, here's, here's our reminders as we, as we step into this text, that revelation is less about predicting and more about preparing. Specifically in this text, the seven trumpets show us the wrath and judgment of God being poured out over time, but culminating in a final judgment. And the question is, how do we prepare for God's judgment of the world, not necessarily of us? This text is not about God judging the church. This text is about God judging those who are not in the church, those who don't have the seal of God in their foreheads. And so how do we prepare prepare our hearts when those who are unrepentant receive God's judgment. That's what this text is about. Uh, number two, Revelation is a warning about the temptation to compromise. And I think that so often we think about compromising as in uh, like going against biblical doctrine, which is true. That's a great way to compromise is to compromise on biblical teaching and doctrine. But there's also a part of compromise where we can be led astray in terms of our disposition our attitude, our presence, the way that we interact. We can be incongruent with the spirit of Christ. So not just doctrine, but also disposition. And I think this text is gonna teach us that we might compromise our disposition and then be faithless witnesses or unfaithful witnesses. And then also Revelation's not written to us, but it's written for us. So all the letters in the New Testament are written to a specific people, to the Philippians, to the Ephesians, to the Romans. This is written to the seven churches, right? And so it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. So when we interpret like locusts and stuff, we can't go, those are Apache helicopters, right? Because first century people didn't know Apache helicopters, right? So we're all on that same page there. But we are gonna understand how uh, this is for our benefit, for our conviction, for our encouragement. And so we'll get there when we get there. So the, the big idea we're gonna get today is while there is still time, while you still have time, repent. That's gonna be especially for those of you who are not Christians. Wonder and witness. Let me pray. Lord, have mercy on us. I ask that you would help the people watching and listening who are not Christians, help them become Christians today. Uh, we who have been unfaithful in our disposition, uh, help us uh, be marked uh, by a spirit that's congruent with the spirit of Christ. And help us see the beauty of your judgment in the midst of the horror of it. In the name we pray, amen. Amen. So I told you we're going to hit the forest, miss some of the trees, and that's okay. I think that's actually a more helpful way of looking at this. So let me do a flyover overview, all right? So the first four, so what I'm looking at here is one image. It's called the seven trumpets. And so the first four trumpets really kind of do a pretty similar thing to the four things we saw last week, the four horsemen. So if you want to kind of unpack the significance of those, I recommend listening to Luke's sermon from last week, but they're pretty similar. So there's a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the freshwater, a third of the sky, that the non-human creation is, uh, the, the wrath of God is poured out and a third of these things are all destroyed. And so the non-human creation even suffers the effects of the sin of 
uh, the people, which is an interesting point to note. This is kind of like a leadership principle that usually like when you're the leader, everyone underneath you suffers from your sin. Likewise, humanity is called to be the leaders of creation and when they sin, the creation suffers for their sin as well. Then you get into the, four, the fifth seal and it changes tune a little bit because right before the fifth seal, this eagle cries out, whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth, repent, repent. The fifth guy blows his trumpet and then uh, Satan comes out of the shaft of the bottomless pit and he comes out with the goal of tormenting and he's allowed to torment all those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead, it says in chapter nine, verse four, that he's like a scorpion sting. If you ever need a reason to move out of Arizona, this is it. The worst thing that God can give us a picture of the torment of the non-Christian world to inspire them, please repent, is scorpions. You know, they're everywhere here. If you don't have them, get a black light. You realize uh, you have them in your house. And so they're allowed to torment for five months. And it says in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They'll long to die and death will flee from them. All right, so one of the things we need to notice as we're looking at this text is, does it make us feel good or make us feel bad, right? This is a make you feel bad text. This is a not looking forward to it text. This is a uh, difficult to swallow text. We'll see more of that later. Then the sixth one comes out and it says, so this is after the fifth one, then the, the, the woe has passed, two woes are still to come. In chap, chapter nine, verse 13, the sixth angel blows his trumpet and this two million strong uh, army that's like lion's heads, women's hair, horses, snakes in the tail, come out to kill a third of, the man, of mankind. The main effect of this is to make you recognize that no amount of storing up ammo or having a bunker or food storage or walls on your house or security systems, no amount of preparation if you are unrepentant from your sin will save you from the wrath of God that is allowed to be unleashed through Satan. There's two million crazy horses. Like, I just want us to recognize that our overestimation of our power and ability as humans is silly. This text especially if you're not a Christian, is saying no amount of good deeds you've stored up, no amount of gold in your basement, no amount of AR-15 ammo, no amount of bulletproof vests, no amount of whatever it is can save you from the wrath of God when the time is near. You do not know how much time you have left. You need to repent. And probably the most chilling thing of all here, we get to the end of chapter nine, is the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold or silver and bronze and stone and wood, which they cannot see, cannot walk. They didn't repent of murdering or sorcery or sexual morality. That if you're a student of the Old Testament, you remember that there's these plagues that God unleashes on Egypt and there's this leader named Pharaoh who plague after plague keeps having a hard heart and doesn't repent. And it's easy to read it and think, this guy's an idiot. And John is here confronting the unbelieving world saying, you're all Pharaoh. God is making his power known, his display known. He's saying, look, I'm giving you time. 
Look at how God's uh, judgment is revealed incrementally. The reason it's incrementally, the reason it says that they'll seek death and not find it is because God's trying to delay his final judgment so that people can see his power and repent and what ends up happening is they don't. That in the midst of God's judgment, there's tremendous opportunity to repent. That the very things for which they're being judged, they go on clinging to in the midst of judgment. And what it says at the end of chapter nine, uh, where we get after these woes get poured out, is there's like this interlude. We see this in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And that's gonna be the main point of our, our address for the church here today. And then in, cha- in the, the seventh trumpet blasts in Revelation 11. And uh, finally, uh, the angel of the Lord blows this trumpet and the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone worships God who is, uh, who, who is saved. Nations rage, wrath came. You destroyed the destroyers, praise the Lord. And so what we get here is this picture of God's wrath and judgment being poured out incrementally with an address to the church in the middle and then this celebratory note at the end that God's judgment is perfect and complete and final. So the, the main idea, especially for the non-Christian world or those of you who are non-Christians who are, who are listening, is that while you still have time, repent. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Stop trusting in the gold in your basement. Stop trusting in technology in the future of medicine. Stop trusting in your good deeds. Stop trusting in your self-justifying internal logic. Stop trusting in your nuclear family system. Stop trusting in your grandkids. Stop trusting in your grandparents. Stop trusting in all created things and trust in the Lord Jesus. I hope that at least some of you who are non-Christians who are here, who have yet to like say, I'm all in for Jesus, that today you'll realize that you still have time, but you don't know how much more time, and so while you still have time, turn to Christ. If that's you, we'll have a prayer team afterwards in the back left of the room who would love to help you become a Christian for the first time. I and Mark Burns will be out in the lobby afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about becoming a Christian, but I hope you recognize that the main effect of this text for you if you're not a Christian is don't be like these people who see the power of God and go meh and they go back to their created things. It's intoxicating and this is meant to be a sober wake-up call. Like say, please see clearly. And part of that is this, this next piece which is that while you still have time, wonder not just wonder at the horror, but these pictures of lion heads, women's hair, horses, snake tail, they're meant to make us go, whoa. That's worse than I thought it was gonna be. I pictured like this courtroom and this clean judge going, guilty, go to your cell over there. But in reality, it's terrible, it's terrifying, it's scary. We're meant to be a little bit in awe of the wrath of God and the severity and, and wildness of it. It's unruly. These are animals doing animal things. But even more than that, I think this is actually a picture of God's mercy. Now you might say, disagree. (laughs) But I want to show you why John, especially, is showing that this is merciful. The first one, like like I said earlier, is that God is pouring out his judgment incrementally with opportunities to repent at every turn. Not only that, but he's disappointed with it. Like, the fact that people aren't repenting is like, what? Come on. 
I'm, I'm showing you my power and glory. Why won't, like, please, turn. And there's like this, the, the eagles are coming and crying out, whoa, whoa, whoa to the dwells on the earth. That's, that's New Testament talk for repent. It's going to get worse. These are heralds of mercy saying, turn, turn. Not only that, but when you deep dive on these numbers, like it's kind of confusing, like a third this, a third that, a third this, a third that. And so looking at the, the picture of these numbers, like the, the place where they get this number of the third from is it's actually meant to be a surprising number. It's not just an arbitrary number, but it's a surprising number. In Zechariah 13.8, it says the whole land, two thirds will be cut off and perish and one third will be left alive. But here in Revelation, it's actually the opposite. Instead of two-thirds being cut off, here one-third is being cut off. It's not one-third being left alive, it's two-thirds being left alive. That this, that this picture of the thirds is meant to illustrate and help us see that God is twice as merciful as we would expect when he comes back to judge the earth. Now, unless you're really steeped in Zechariah 13, you're not going to be, whoa, he's merciful. You're going, wow, this is harsh. But it's even more than that. We see those numbers again kind of play out at the surprising mercy of God at the end or the middle of Revelation 11. In 11, it says, and at that hour, there's a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed. Now, seven is a perfect number times a thousand, which is a lot. Um, So 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified. And you go like, that sounds brutal. 7,000 people killed, that's bad. But But in 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah proclaims that only 7,000 will be left alive. And here we're going, and and he says that nine-tenths will be destroyed and one-tenth will be alive. And so in John, in Revelation, he's saying, you thought only a tenth would survive, but actually 90% are surviving. You thought that God would only leave alive 7,000, but here only 7,000 are killed. And the rest repent and and they begin to glorify the God of heaven. And so the imagery here in the numbers is actually God is nine times or twice as merciful that you are going to expect him to be. This makes me think about when I was in high school driving my parents' minivan and I had six or seven guys in there and I was flooring it going backwards down the street and I lost control and hit the fence of one of my uh, neighbor's house. And I wasn't allowed to have the van. I wasn't, when I did have the van, I was only allowed to have one other guy in the van. Uh, I was flooring it going down the street. My dad's a driver's ed teacher. Uh, <laughs> You know, so they get, I get the bill for this thing. I remember, go, like, I have no money. I'm just playing sports. I'm, I can't pay this. I'm totally, like, there's, like, this, like, inability feeling. I don't have the money to pay this. And this brought shame upon the family feeling. You know, like, uh, well, I thought your dad, why are you, why? and just, like, the foolishness of, like, young, and I expected to go and just get trashed, uh, torn to pieces, right? And my, my dad is a teacher, uh, and so it's not like, and my mom stayed at home, so we weren't just like, oh, just write a check for it. Like, it was like things were tight, and so there's like, maybe I hurt, like, the family, fine. And so there's a lot of layers to that, and I just remember the experience of my dad being like, yeah, that was really dumb. But there, I was expecting, like, this anger, shame, pour it on. Like, I came already knowing it was bad, and instead it was like, hey, we love you, people make, like, and there's this, I experienced mercy and warmth without minimizing the folly, but I remember being surprised at how merciful my dad was. And I think that 
when we stand before God on the judgment day, I think that there's like this subtle thing we have in the church that we think that standing before God on the judgment day is gonna be like this shameful experience. He's gonna know all your stuff, all the stuff you, all, he, and he's gonna x-ray up and down and go like, yeah, bad. And it's gonna be like this woe is me thing. But I think that part of what this text in the New Testament teaches is that the Father with open arms welcomes us home. Says, I paid for all your sin. I'm no longer holding it against you. Not in an objective sense, but also not in a relational sense. I think some of us are slow to repent and slow to trust in Christ because we think that it's gonna be like, well, welcome to family of God, work off your debt for eternity. Like we're being welcomed into God's you know, internment camp. We're gonna be re-educated and, and break bricks for forever to make up for the stuff we've done. And that's not at all the picture we get of the God of the New Testament or God of the whole Bible. It's that he pays fully for our sins, welcomes us in and reinstates us as children, heirs, fellow heirs with God of the promise that we're not gonna be shamed and we're not gonna be condemned. We're not gonna be given, you know, a, you're gonna sit in the trunk because you can't sit in the driver's seat. You know, there's, there's like this beautiful picture of fatherly acceptance. And I think the more that we see like the nerd stuff of the numbers in this text, actually like the nerd stuff and the numbers in this text are helped make, supposed to make us go, how merciful do you think God is? Probably two or nine times more than that is how merciful he actually is. Which is good news for every person in this room Because without exception, apart from God's mercy, we are absolutely devastated on the last day and every day. Which brings me to the idea of how the church is meant to be faithful. How do we not shoot at our own goal? How do we not shoot at the wrong goal? How do we see this picture? That, like I said, there's these seven trumpets. Of the seven trumpets, six of them happen. Then there's this interlude where I think John's really addressing the church before the seventh one comes. That in the middle of time, like three and a half out of the seven, between the resurrection and the second coming of Christ, how are we gonna be faithful in the midst of this? And so this, while we still have time, we have to bear witness. Because I hope you understand here that the time will run out when you can invite people to repent and trust in Jesus. Like we, we want to operate relationally and with respect and with honor, but at the same time, so often we can like use some of that as like a, a, an escape or a justification for not inviting people to trust in Christ for their salvation. That they, like you, have a timer. And so we need to ask, how can I be a faithful witness? So if you want to be a faithful witness in, in the midst of God's judgment, this really is two things. And the First thing is Revelation 10, and the second thing is Revelation 11. Revelation 10 says that we need to eat the little scroll. So read with me Revelation 10. I'm going to read uh, verses uh, 8 and following. Then the voice, this is speaking to John, that I had heard from heaven, spoke to me again saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea of the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it'll be sweet like honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, it made me bitter. This is a good picture of how we're supposed to actually uh, not just read the Bible to like inform our minds, but to like eat it, metabolize it, make it a part of us that would, that would energize and mobilize our whole bodies that we, that we don't just read scripture, we're actually meant to consume it, 
to bring it into ourselves and allow it to be the, the driving force of our lives, the thing that actually energizes it. Better than calories is, is God's word. The picture here that it tastes so good, but it hurts our stomach. You could say it's, it's sweet on the lips, but it's bitter on the hips. You know, it, it's just a little uncomfortable. And there's like, you eat it and it's good, but then afterwards you're like, ugh, maybe I shouldn't have eaten that because there's like a nausea, a discomfort, an, a, a, a yuckiness that it does to our guts. It's because it's the word of God. It's precious. We're eager. And then we eat it and we understand what, is it, what it means. It's actually deeply uncomfortable. What it means to me is that I'm actually a sinner and I'm not okay. And the self-acceptance picture I've been given from the culture is actually false. That it's actually the self-conquest, the self-control, the self-repentance like, by the power of the Spirit is actually, and that's uncomfortable. That requires training, effort, discomfort. That I take the words of God and I put them into myself and I'm uncomfortable both because of what they mean to me and because of what they mean to the world around me. Later on in Revelation 11, it's talking about after the world destroys and dances on the grave of the faithful witnesses. And what it says in chapter 10, it says that those who dwell on the earth, the unrepentant ones, will rejoice over the deadness of the witnesses, of the martyrs, of the church. They'll rejoice over them, happy that they're dead. And they'll make merry and have a party and exchange presents. That the world will be happy when Christians are killed for their faith because... The two prophets of the witnesses had been a torment to those who dwelled on the earth. Part of the reason it makes our stomach bitter is because it's calling me to repent unto godliness. Part of the reason it makes my stomach bitter is that the message that I have for the world will, the world will interpret as us tormenting them. Now I want to just make a point about this is that there's a lot that has been said and is being said about the reason the world hates the church. The reason the world hates the church is because of the, the, world's, the, the church's hypocrisy. Or the reason the world hates the church is because uh, she's unfaithful. Or, or because of what they say about this. Or because of what, they don't say it just right. And, they, and if we just did a better job at the church, then people wouldn't hate the church. And this text actually says that the reason the world hates the church is because of her obedience. It's not because of her disobedience. That when we meaningfully ingest the word of God and share it with people faithfully, they'll feel tormented by that message and they'll be happy when we can't give it anymore. Is the church a faithful witness most of the time? No. Am I a faithful Christian most of the time? No. But that's not the cause of the world hating the gospel. It's actually the gospel is the reason the world hates the gospel. The command to repent. But if we are not students of scripture, eating scripture, taking it in, and being willing to share it, we'll never have a chance at being faithful. The next thing we need to do is uh, we wear sackcloth. This is in Revelation 11, the second part of our witness. So it says that there's, uh, I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God, Revelation 11, and the altar rose, but do not measure the court. Uh, they'll trample it. 
uh, for 42 months, and I get grant authority to my two witnesses. There's a lot of speculation about what those two witnesses are. I think the most clear answer is that in Deuteronomy, it talks about how the evidence of truth is if two witnesses bear witness to it. So this is a true witness of the church, and they prophesy for 1260 days. And here's the delineating factor here, is that the church is clothed in sackcloth. Right, the wrath of God pours out on the first six trumpets. Nobody repents. Here the church is clothed in sackcloth in the midst of God's judgment. And what ends up happening is that uh, they still hate the church. They conquer them, crush them, kill them. Verse eight, it says, and their dead bodies will line the street in the great city that is symbolically called Sodom, that is a land of unrepentant sexual uh, immorality and Egypt was the land of oppressive power structures. There the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages gazed at their dead bodies, refused to let them be buried in a tomb and they threw a party on their tombs because they're happy that the sackcloth people died. So if this being a faithful witness thing is a self-preservation strategy, hope we can understand that that is actually not a good strategy. There are actually no good self-preservation strategies given here. <laughs> that as the church is faithful, then she is martyred and then the people celebrate until Christ comes back after three and a half days, raise them from the dead. And then at that hour, a tenth of the city falls, but the rest are terrified and give glory to God in heaven. It's wild to me that God pouring out his wrath through the six trumpets yields zero people repenting. But the church wearing sackcloth and being risen from the dead, all of a sudden there's this great revival that breaks out and people start believing in Christ. That actually the church's willingness to be martyred and to have the presence of those who wear sackcloth is the picture of effective witness in Revelation 11. Now here's the thing about sackcloth is nobody here Wears sackcloth. If you have a sackcloth outfit at home, uh, you're weird. You know. So, the, but it's a, But the point of sackcloth was when you're uncomfortable inside, you put on something that is uncomfortable on your outside. So, kind of, it's the pursuit of congruence, right? I'm, I'm, discomfortable here, and I want to be physically uncomfortable. And it's also a cue that when you forget to be physically, to be emotionally uncomfortable, you put on sackcloth, and it reminds you to be. Uncomfortable. That the sackcloth was something you wore when two things were happening. One, uh, the chief one, the main one, is when we are grieving our sin. It's the mark of shame, of appropriate shame. It's the mark of I'm not who I'm supposed to be. It's the mark of I've offended the holy God. It's the mark of I wanted to be this and instead I'm this. It's the mark of grief over sin and the attempt to truly and fully repent of it. It's a humble posture. It's a I require the mercy of God posture. It's also a picture of grieving our suffering. You know, when, when Job loses his family, he wears sackcloth, ashes. Really entering into the grief of the brokenness of life. It's also a picture of grieving our surroundings. So not just my proximate, but like the whole, the whole thing, everything marred by sin and death. Now here's the question, is 
grief and repentance the thing that the church is known for in the world right now? No. But it's the thing the church is known for as of being a faithful witness in the midst of God's judgment and revelation. Far too often we're known for our, our anger, smug, distance, self-righteousness. Like, this happened to me through sabbatical bit. You know, there's a handful of people that I generally like. So I want to preface it. I generally like them. But you like listen to enough Jordan Peterson podcasts and you get angry, mad at those people ruining everything, right? And, and it's just, it's the, the smug, if they weren't so stupid, if they were smart like me, I just mad. And so I'm telling you, I was listening to them because I generally uh, appreciate their perspective. But I found in myself getting more and more fussy and angry and less and less like someone who's wearing sackcloth. I'm more mad at their sin and less grieving and repentant about mine. I'm more frustrated with those people and those people and those people than I am actually trembling before the holy God of Israel saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I read this. I was thinking about the last days. This is 2 Timothy 3. If you um, don't yet believe that we're in the last days, which by last days I mean from resurrection to second coming, Uh, This hopefully will convince you. Paul says this, In the last days there will be some difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. There's about 18 or 19 things on that list. And I think in the last couple of weeks, I've felt and been like 11 of them. Heartless, slanderous, appearance of godliness denying its power, haughty. And I feel like, and I think that, like for our church, our our group, like me, that like one of our threats to us having a faithful disposition, not just a faithful doctrine, but a, have a faithful disposition is this kind of swelling, angry, right-wing energy. That one of the questions I have to ask myself on a regular basis, now especially after being cut to the bone by this text, is uh, am I wearing sackcloth? or am I projecting some other disposition to the world? When non-Christians experience me, do they go, man, that guy grieves over his sin and he's working hard, seeking to repent of it fully. Or do they go, man, that guy thinks he knows better than everybody and he thinks if everybody in the world was like him, it'd just be a better place and that guy definitely has all the answers. And I think about like being a light in the workplace. What does it mean to be a light in your workplace? I think we often think about it's like this like, peppy, encouraging person, which is not necessarily bad. But if we don't have a reputation of wearing sackcloth, of grieving our own sin and feeling close to the ways in which we aren't faithful and that we are constantly, not just on an ivy drip need for God's mercy, but we are constantly under the thumb of God apart from the blood of Jesus. I just feel like I'm telling you that 
smug anger at those other people is not the mark of the faithful witness of the church. It's that we'd be a sackcloth wearing, humility having, have mercy on me, O Lord, people. That it's true, you will be tempted to compromise on doctrine, but I think also, I tend to feel most like tempted to compromise on disposition. A spirit incongruent with the spirit of Christ. God is a good judge. No rock will be left unturned. None can escape his eye. And when we eat the scroll, have a bitter stomach, and put on sackcloth, and are a light to the unbelieving world, preeminently through our humility and our sense of our own need for mercy, this is how we are a faithful church in the midst of God's judgment. Now, I don't want to at all minimize that there's a lot wrong in the world and a lot to be angry about in the world. But I do want to say this, is that more so than acknowledging and seeing all the things to be angry about, the primary call in the book of Revelation is to be a people who wear sackcloth, who grieve, who lament, and who are known for their repentance, not for their self-righteousness. We're gonna sing a song here in a couple minutes and it's all about this cry, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. And I, and I hope that we walk away from today understanding that while we still have time, put on sackcloth and be a faithful witness, hate your sin and trust God's grace. Let me pray. Jesus, have mercy on us. I pray that you will help us see our need for mercy in a fresh way. Convict us of specific sins. Help me repent of the ways in which I've been godless and help our church be a faithful presence in the midst of your judgment.